0: Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
1: A deadly case of cabin fever. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. Keddie Cabin Murders from April 1981. Three people, including a single mother of five, Glenna Sue Sharp, her son John, and a family friend, Dana Wingate, were tied up, bludgeoned, and stabbed to death inside a tiny cabin in this resort-like community in Plumas County. Her 12-year-old daughter, Tina, was taken from the cabin.
2: I went camping with my dad in the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California about uh, four years ago, I would say. And that was scary enough. Like that was enough. My dad almost died on the trip. I remember having to be like, will the jaws of life come down into this gully to pick up my very dehydrated dad if need be? So I was thinking about what something we could do there, something cabin likes. We don't often traverse like more like spooky camp stories, which are almost one of the scariest things to me, really, because you are you have nothing. You're just on your own out there. And I was also thinking about what we talked about last week, which is unsolved mysteries and murders and cold cases and how there's a lot of technology that can help us solve things way after the fact. So this has it all, baby. This has it all. Today, we're going to talk about the Ketty murders or the gruesome quadruple homicide that happened in Cabin 28. Ooh. Homicide. Oh, homicide. Did I say homicide?
1: Yeah.
2: Oh. I also have a cold. I'll blame it on the cold.
1: Yeah, no, you're yeah. I, I'm done being sick and now you're almost done being sick.
2: I'm almost done being sick, so I apologize if I sound sexy as hell yeah. during this podcast. Uh, this happened in 1981 in Keddie, a rural resort town in the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California. And it is pretty gruesome and puzzling to all.
1: But I mean, as soon as you said it was 1981, I was like, "There's no knows going on here." Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. What's happening? Everyone's in it, like, faded baseball shirts and cutoffs. A lot of bowl cuts happening. Pac Man
1: fever is <laughs> running wild. <laughs> exactly.
2: We've got Keds, um, right? Keds were big then. We got Keds. We yeah. got Pepsi's. We got Pizza Huts. Rampant
1: Atari a- 2600. That's right.
2: That's right. That's good. But I, uh, I want to show you guys. I mean, first. Before you listen to this, if you can, to see the cabin that this all takes place in, it's it is like an eighties B movie, like a horror movie. It is it fits the part completely. There was a movie roughly based on what we're about to talk about, but it is like it sets the scene for everything. Very rural, very bare bones, rickety old.
1: Cabin. White chicks? Mm-hmm. It's not the movie White Chicks, is it? <laughs>
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. It's the movie White Chicks. Sorry. Uh, forget the Keddy Murders. You're right. Unzip White Chicks. Okay. Anyway, in the fall of 1980, Glenna, Susan, Sue Sharp, and her five children left her home in Connecticut after separating from her husband, James Sharp. James Sharp. Connecticut also is a horrifying place. We're going from like one horrifying place
1: on the East Coast. Yeah. There's something like a haunting in Connecticut. I feel like Connecticut's have... Isn't there a movie sense like a haunting in Connecticut? I feel like Connecticut's
2: just full of woods and white-collar criminals. It's absolutely horrifying. So she decided to relocate to Northern California where her brother Don was living because she was separating from, from her husband, building a new life with her new, her five children, not new children, they were her children since birth. Upon arriving in California, she rented Cabin 28 at the Ketty Resort in rural Sierra, Sierra Nevada in Ketty. There she resided with her 15-year-old son, John, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, and two younger sons, Rick and Greg. Rick was 10, Greg was age 5. So we have a range of of kids. So we have Sue, again, to review, John, 14, Sheila, 12, Tina, Rick, and Greg. On April 11, 1981, around 1.30 p.m., Sue and Sheila drove from Keddie to pick up John and his friend, Dana Hall Wingate, from Gasner Park in Quincy, California, and brought them to Ketty, five miles-ish away. Two hours later, about 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy. Again, it was the 80s where they were supposed to visit some friends. Around this time, the two were seen in the city's downtown area. A local woman, Donna Williams, claimed to have picked them up in front of a tire store and given them a ride down the road to another friend's home. Then later, the two were seen at a party at Oakland Camp in Quincy. That same evening, Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family, who lived in the next cabin, while Sue remained at home with Rick, Greg, and the boy's young friend, Justin Smart. Sheila left the cabin shortly after 8 p.m., leaving her mother alone with the younger children. Tina, who had been watching television at the Seabolts, returned home to the cabin around 9.30 p.m. after Sheila arrived to spend the night. So there's a lot of things happening. We've got people coming in and out. There's a lot of children. It'll get a little bit clearer. Around 7 a.m. in the morning of April 12th, Sheila returned home and discovered the dead bodies of Sue, John, and Dana in the cabin's living room. All three had been bound with adhesive tape and wire. Tina was gone, while the three younger children, Rick, Greg, and Justin, were just completely unharmed in the next bedroom. Initial reports stated that the three young boys had slept through the incident, though this was kind of contradicted later Upon discovering the scene, Sheila rushed back to the Seabolt's cabin, grabbed James Seabolt, who grabbed Rick, Greg, and Justin through the bedroom window. He later admitted to having briefly entered the cabin through the back door to see if anyone was still alive, which completely contaminated everything in the process. And also that didn't come out till later, too. Weird admission after the fact. The murders of Sue, John, and Dana were horrible. Two bloodied knives and one hammer were found at the scene, and one of the knives, a steak knife later determined to have been used in the murders, had been bent in half due to extreme force. So when we talk about two, um, the Burger Chef murders, we talked again about like a, another like horrible knife injury where you can imagine the force that was used to make these murders, have these murders happen. Blood spatter evidence from inside the house indicated that the murders of Sue, John, and Dana had all taken place in the living room. Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa, nude from the waist down, and gagged with a blue bandana and her own panties, which had been secured with tape. She had been stabbed in the chest. Her throat was slashed, and on the side of the head of her head was an imprint matching the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun. John's throat was slashed. Dana had multiple head injuries and had been manually strangled. All three had blunt force trauma to their heads caused by hammer or hammers. Autopsies determined that they died from the knife wounds and blunt force trauma. Not a great way to go. Not a great way to go. And these, again, are very healthy, young teenagers. Sheila and the Seabolt family, with whom Sheila had spent the night in the neighboring cabin, heard nothing during the night. A couple living nearby were awakened around 1.30 a.m. with what sounded like muffled screaming, but they couldn't really say where from. Tina's jacket shoes and a shoebox containing various tools were missing from the cabin, which showed no indication of forced entry. An unidentified fingerprint was found on a handrail on the stairs leading to the cabin's back door. The cabin's telephone had been left off the hook, the lights in the cabin were completely off, and the drapes were closed. Suspects interviewed included a man who disappeared from Ketty shortly after the murders and was later found in Oregon after submitting to a polygraph examination, the, sus- the suspect was cleared. One of the Sharp's neighbors, Marilyn Smart, the mother of Justin Smart, later claimed that she had found a bloody jacket belonging to Tina in her basement and had turned it into the police, though no official record of that has ever existed. Her husband, Martin Smart, also claimed that a claw hammer had been inexplicably gone, missing from his home. Plumas County Sheriff Doug Thomas, who presided over the case, later stated that Martin had provided endless clues in the case that seemed to throw the suspicion away from him. Loaded statement. In addition to interviewing the Smarts, detectives interviewed numerous other locals and the neighbors. Several, including members of the Seabolt family, recalled seeing an unknown green van parked at the Sharps cabin around 9 p.m. Others recalled noticing a brown Datsun parked at the residence that evening, which appeared to have a tire that was going flat. Justin gave conflicting stories of the evening, including that he had dreamt details of the murders, though later claimed to have actually witnessed them. In his latter account of events, told under hypnosis, he claimed to have heard sounds coming from the living room while watching television in the bedroom with Rick and Greg. Can you imagine, like, if that is true, to, like, be processing something in another room that is horrifying and just not having left?
1: What I, I can't help but think, and I don't know if anyone listening is thinking the same thing, what, what sounds like the most obvious thing?
2: Yeah, that they murdered them, right? I. I mm-hmm. uh, it's just know, like if there's it's it's hard to th- yeah, but like but why?
1: I mean, why doesn't matter? It's it's the it's mm-hmm. the what Occam's razor. <laughs> I mean, that would say I that guess. that's.
2: I just like it, uh, You know, there's not like a history of violence really that I found with the, you know. You don't know. It's it's true. Yeah. I don't. They could have been the chopping up animals. Me. You know. Very true. So investigating these sounds, he saw, so Rick and Greg went to investigate, he saw Sue and two men, one with a mustache and long hair, the other clean shaven with short hair, both wore glasses. According to Justin, John and Dana then entered the home and began heatedly arguing with the men. It was a fight. Tina entered the room and then she was taken out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Based on Justin's descriptions, composite sketches of the two unknown men were produced by forensic artist Harlan Embry. In press releases accompanying the sketches, the suspects were described as being in their late 20s, early 30s. One was around 5'11", the other was 6'2", tall with dark blonde hair. And then the other one was a little bit shorter, 5'3", with black greased hair. Um, and then 5'10", both had gold frame glasses. Rumors regarding the crimes began ritua- became like ritualistic or motivated by drug trafficking went on for a while, but then they were kind of dismissed by the county sheriff who said that they didn't find any drug paraphernalia. They didn't find any like weird ritualistic thing. A lot of the times there's a lot of symbiology involved in that. Nothing of the sort in this case. Carla Mcmullen, a family acquaintance, later told detectives that Dana Wingate had recently stolen an unknown quality of an unknown quantity of LSD from local drug dealers, though she was unable to provide proof of this claim. So, again, it's like, could this something like that, for example, LSD, which would maybe put it into a different realm of murder. She could be totally just making it up because she's, you know, swept up in it, or it could be a crucial piece of eyewitness testimony. We don't know. About 4,000 man hours were spent working on the case, which Thomas described as frustrating The Sheriff. In December 1983, detectives ruled out serial killers Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole as potential suspects. Because Tina was believed to have been abducted from the crime scene, her disappearance was initially investigated by the FBI. Though it was reported on April 29, 1981, that the FBI had backed off the search, as the Department of Justice was doing an adequate job and made the FBI's presence unnecessary. A grid pattern search of the area covering a five mile radius around the cabin was conducted with police dogs, but they didn't find anything. On April 22nd, 1984, three years and 11 days after the murders and Tina's disappearance, a bottle collector discovered a cranium portion of a human skull and part of a mandible at Camp 18 near Feather Falls in the neighboring Butte County, a distance of about 100 miles from Ketty. Shortly after announcing the discovery, Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call that identified the remains as belonging to Tina, but the call was not documented in this case. <sighs> a recording of the call was found at the bottom of an evidence box at some point after 2013 by a deputy who was assigned the case. The remains were confirmed by a forensic pathologist to be those of Tina Sharp in June 1984. Near the remains, detectives also found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser. Very sad. Let's take a breather. Let's take a break, and we'll get back to it.
0: Welcome to Scare You to Sleep. Do you love listening to podcasts to fall asleep to, but hate waking up to loud laughter or yelling? Are you also a fan of horror and scary stories? Then this is the podcast for you. Join me, Shelby Scott, as you curl up and relax while I read you a spooky bedtime story and listen to the gentle, yet somewhat unnerving, sounds of all that go bump in the night. Hope to scare you soon. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.
1: We have a lot of nice messages.
0: Yeah. Which is nice. That is We've got nice. Some nice
1: reviews, nice nice messages, uh, which we appreciate. Emily, I say Emily or Emil, but it's Emily Stafford. I stumbled across mm. this podcast a while back. I listened to the podcast very little until the Woodstock 99 episode. Now I'm absolutely hooked because Ooh, of this that very, Oh, that was
2: your. Jason uh-huh. hooks him in, baby.
1: This isn't going to be the first Woodstock I mentioned uh, because of this historical aspect of Woodstock and being raised on classic rock and the commentary on the crimes. So I have a couple from YouTube. We have a YouTube channel where we, we put do. stuff on. It's, wow, just, look Ghost Town. Yeah, just look up. somebody checks that out. Just look up Ghost Town Podcast if you want to uh, subscribe to it or give a thumbs up on a video. It helps. It's just, you know, trying to spread it around.
2: Yeah. All media. We're, conf- we're coming on you.
1: Is that how it goes?
2: Yeah, coming on.
1: <laughs> great, hi, mom. Uh, Johnny Rockwell says, Ooh, "Johnny about Woodstock '99." Funnily enough, I'm, I'm going to assume that's a word. Yeah, I know Frostbit Blue. One of the bands. Remember, I've read, read all the bands. Yeah, knows Frostbit Blue. Oh my god! One of the members was a teacher at my school. The band is still together. Actually, not, <gasps> And I was back. I was like, that's kind of great. Like, I, I love kinda, that. Yeah, I, I would. I,
2: I will yeah. invite them for on behalf of both of us to come say hello
1: and then Town. matthias bonici nice action park at the end action, action park. park cost $15 for kids between 70 and 20 finally
2: 80. some answers mm-hmm. of how much it fucking cost i have asked everyone this is i've elicited so many conversations based on again this is jason's motivated one of our favorite episodes action park but we still could not nail down how much it cost per head
1: you paid with blood We went every year. My brother got my brother lost a lot of skin on the Alpine slide. The track got so hot it melted his skin when he crashed. Oh my god! As a twelve-year-old, this is not another episode. This is
2: a gift that keeps on giving.
1: As a twelve-year-old, I used to dive to the bottom of the cliff jump pool and collect Uh all the money and jewelry that came up from people who jumped in. (laughs) What a grift! What a grift! I love it. We also used to stand by the Geronimo Falls and watch the ladies come down the slide w- without their bathing suits since it was basically impossible to keep anything tied onto that ride. Oh, I'm proud to my say fucking
2: God. that
1: I'm an action park survivor. Should
2: we have the action park awards every year where people like send us their most gruesome and vulgar stories I mean, and we judge them? the fact
1: that the, 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 it, it's so hot.
2: That is, I will never unhear that. Yeah. Your skin melting off because of a hot slide.
1: Oh uh, yeah, it's uh, so we got some nice oh messages. Goodness. Yeah. Check us out on patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Yeah. Bonus episodes, mm-hmm. early access with no ads. You don't no hear ads. any of this. You, no, know, you yeah. miss you miss cut all it, of this. Cut cut
2: all this out.
1: Cut it all out.
2: Mm-hmm. And just and just get to it. Just get to the good.
1: I'm going to throw a little something, another true crime thing out there. Okay. I didn't bring this up yet. I was talking about January Jones, and mm-hmm. I was listening to her. She's from Mad Men. She mm-hmm. Betty Draper. She's amazing. She's on um, Armchair Expert podcast, which I really don't listen to, but I was like, I, re- I want to hear about her. She's great. Mm-hmm. She talked, she loves true crime. Also Ooh. loves Vanderpump Rules, but loves Two true crime. Two of our favorite things. She said, and this might be common knowledge, but uh, about JonBenet Ramsey. She's like, the brother did it. Yeah. Unequivocally, he he ate, she ate his pineapple and whatever. He Mm -hmm. got mad and hit her because he's nine years old. the parents are covering it up. The parents are covering it up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think... Is that pretty... I think that that's a pretty well-defined and believable theory. Um, I think also, you know, the dad... I mean, it's hard because like the sexual stuff is always, always kind of in the background too and I don't think her brother did that. But... I do think it was done in the family. Someone in the family committed this crime. And I think, yeah, the brother had anger issues. You know. But he
1: says, like, the brother, like, he, of course, you know, either he really doesn't remember it, Mm -hmm. it's blocked out because it's traumatic, or he Mm -hmm. does, and he's like, well, I'm not gonna, what do you want to say now? Yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah, I'm a murderer. I mean, I was nine. And, you know, she also brought up that you you can't try a child for murder until they're 10. Mm -hmm. And he was nine, so, really, they went through this whole thing mm-hmm. that made it kind of worse, that sh- like shined yeah. a lot of light on things instead of saying, like, our son just got really mad, he didn't realize what he was doing. Yeah. And th- I don't think people would have been like, well, th- he should be, you know, be put to death. You, you know what Yeah, I mean? well, it's almost I, like, a,
2: like a season of Fargo where you're like, what are you doing? Just say the truth. Like, you're
1: accusing a lot of other people yeah, in its wake. Yeah, a lot
2: of bullshit happening. When really just saying the truth would be an easier, cleaner, and better for everybody scenario, yeah, yeah, I think I think Burke is, yeah, I think that's a pretty like popular opinion, very logical. I still, you know, I don't think we'll ever get closure on that case, really. At some point, I hope somebody like he would probably have to say something. I guess, well,
1: I think this case. Honestly, it seems like <laughs> the most obvious thing and yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not being talked about.
2: Yeah, but uh, it's... Oh, God, yeah. I just don't know why. I'm also watching Aaron Hernandez documentary um, too and it's the same thing where it's like, now we're kind of getting to the why, like six episodes in, but I was like, I need the why, I need at least a kernel of the why to follow that thing, which I get, again, with JonBenét Ramsey, it's like the brother like got mad at her. He had anger issues. She was like eating his stuff. Well, and in
1: fairness, like my... Like sisters would fight like violently
2: mm-hmm.
1: where it would be very easy for honestly for that to happen.
2: Well, really? Yeah.
1: Pretty bad. My they're brother was rough. a biter, yeah. but
2: I, I have two brothers and they, they would fight, but they, but yeah. one of them was like a little
1: more violent. My sisters were very like, tough. Really? Kind of, cr- you know, they kind of were like criminal. A bit. They've all, they're completely not like that at all now. Mm-hmm. You still see it in their eyes, though.
2: Yeah, this little glint of violence. I don't care
1: if you have a 401k. Don't cross I know who you are. Don't cross the
2: Horton sisters. Not Horton. (laughs) Only one Horton. (laughs) Okay. Don't cross one Horton sister, one unnamed last name sister. They will... Woo! Spielberg. Never a less- Spielberg.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, some
2: nice Jewish girls. Let they uh, still single. I want it's to them up with Steven Spielberg's a, kids. A really nice hedge fund. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> when my mom was married to Steven Spielberg. Oh, did cool. I mention
2: that? Yeah. Well, you, you never mentioned dive. So yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> were coming to California because Steven Spielberg's mom had a restaurant, that like burger restaurant. Oh yeah. Based on Jaws. And we would go there because they had this, this like cage of fries that you would get them in. It was, it was, it was like submarine themed. Oh. It was like my favorite place in the world for a really long time. Horrible, disgusting food. But Spielberg, you know, mm. what are you supposed to do? Let's get back to our murder at hand, shall we? So that is really what happened until around 1996. And this is the point where we're going to get to all of the updates. And like I said before, a case is never really locked and closed There are things that happen. There are like insane amount of progress that can be made with the proper technology, with people dying, with people not dying and enough time going by where they're like, hey, actually, I saw something kind of a thing. And this is one of those cases in point that I was really thinking thinking about after the Burger Chef murders. In 1996, Robert Joseph Silveria Jr. was examined as a potential suspect in the murders. The cabin in which the murders occurred was demolished in 2004, unfortunately. In a 2008 documentary on the murders, Marilyn Smart claimed that she suspected her husband Martin and his friend John Boobede were responsible for the murders of Sue, John, Dana, and Tina. Marilyn claimed that on the evening of the crime, she had left Martin and Boobede at a local bar around 11 p.m. and returned home to go to sleep. Around 2 a.m. on April 12th, she she stated that she awoke to find the two burning down an unknown item in the wood stove. Additionally, she alleged that Martin hated Johnny Sharp with a passion. However, in the, t- the documentary, the 2008 one, Sheriff Doug Thomas said he personally interviewed Martin and that Martin had passed a polygraph examination. Also, I just want to say, too, polygraph examinations are not fail-safe. They measure a lot of different things that are happening in your body, but they are not, like, a tried-and-true metric of if you're yeah, lying or not. That's
1: one, for me, that's just like, one little piece.
2: Yeah, I trust blood... Spatterings, Or just like what
1: makes the most, you know, what's traditionally, is it a, it's a family member or Mm -hmm. or somebody that you known to them and not usually like a random drifter.
2: Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah. It's usually, again, it's not, and we've talked about cases where random people might've been involved and it's just like, oh my God, arbitrarily this thing, or even like in cold blood, you know, it was an arbitrary murder that became iconic, but that's most 99.9% of the time it is not that. So Martin Smart we can't talk to because he died of cancer in Portland in June 2000. John Bubidi, who allegedly had ties to organized crime in Chicago, died there in 1988. On March 24, 2016, a hammer matching the description of the hammer Martin claimed to have lost was discovered in a local pond and taken into evidence by Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. Plumas County Sheriff Hagwood, who was 16 years old at the time of the murders and knew the Sharp family personally stated, the location it was found, it would have been intentionally put there. It would have not been accidentally misplaced. Gamberg also stated that at the time, six potential suspects were being examined. In a 2016 article published by the Sacramento Bee detailing the discovery of the hammer shortly after the murders, Martin had left Ketty and driven to Reno, Nevada. From there, he sent a letter to Marilyn ruminating on personal struggles in their marriage, which he concluded with, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. Uh Uh-oh. In a 2016 interview, Gamberg stated that the letter was overlooked in the initial investigation and never admitted as evidence. He later criticized the quality of the initial investigation, saying you could take someone just coming out of an academy and they'll have done a better job. A counselor with whom Martin regularly visited would also allege that he had admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but claimed I didn't have anything to do with the boys. He allegedly told the counselor that Tina was killed to prevent her from identifying him as she had witnessed the whole thing. So again, if that's the case... You're not wrong in that it was the person next door, essentially, with like a bad history and violent acts and kind of had to dispose of anyone who caught him doing these things. In April 2018, the Plumas County Sheriff's Office analyzed some DNA taken from a strip of white medical tape consistent with that used to bind the victim's hands and ankles and cover the mouth of one victim. County Sheriff's Office moves forward in its efforts to solve the murder case. We don't know, they haven't identified that yet. So they're like, we have found a match. Sheriff Gamberg says, there are people locally who know more than they've said and I believe we've identified some of them and we know who they are and they know who we are. And I have every confidence that either they participated after the fact or they have first-hand information. It's obviously a worthwhile pursuit. There's not an expiration date on homicides and to the extent that we are surveying siblings and family members, it is our fundamental obligation to them to understand who did this and why. So that was a quote in 2016. This is still happening. So crazy that uh, Sheriff who was personal friends with the family is now on the case, which feels very good and also very cinematic, I would say. Um, but this case could be solved in a matter of like a year, maybe less. It is ongoing, and we will keep you updated. I want to thank the Reno Gazette Journal, People Magazine, Plumas County News, and the Reno Gazette Journal again.
1: <laughs> I, I feel so much like info. I just you. Feel, what I hear, like if, just imagine mm-hmm. coming home. Mm-hmm. finding dead people dead, right? Yeah. Other people in the next room, and they're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, oh, we were just watching TV or taking mm-hmm. a nap. What, what's going on? Uh, well, I mean, there's people here that were, like, they weren't, like, poisoned. You know no. what I mean? Yeah, it was it, violent. It, it, it was, was violent and loud, and they were just like, oh, no, I didn't. I didn't yeah, I but they could
2: have taken them out. It was also, like, again, to play devil's advocate, yeah. like, later-ish for kids okay. to be up. So they may have been, like, fast asleep, and this all happened. But also, like, Why? you know like we still don't really we know why maybe one of them died later because she witnessed it but we don't really know why this all happened and what a horrible like can you imagine the guilt if if the boys in the other room didn't do it the guilt of them being the ones that didn't die in that cabin that night like
1: wow yeah but I, I feel like in any other situation if you watched a movie TV mm-hmm. show listen to anything else the first thing you'd be like well who was there like mm-hmm. oh yeah we were we were there but yeah it's like do. who's
2: in the closest proximity
1: i mean it, the next thing would be like if the boys were just kind of sitting there next to them and be like oh yeah they were murdered i don't know who did it <laughs> that's the next that yeah. would be the next move you'd be like well that's odd mm-hmm. and, and not to say that it is the case because literally anything could happen at any time but when you're you know you're like oh no it wasn't it was it a mafia LSD mm-hmm. deal gone bad. Yeah, I mean that's
2: definitely like out there. But it just it feels like there's in this case too much information. Yeah. Or you know, it's like what about the car? And that car and those two ma- men and those two you know, like we're all these like dudes floating around and then But in some, the of that's, house. some
1: of that's just people saying that. True, right? but yeah. it's like
2: why would they, you know, like who's saying what and when? It's like you're you're trying to parse all of these different opinions and facts and on top of it horrible investigation you know
1: and that's that's where Which a lot of it boils down killer. to is yeah. is not prepared mm-hmm. not used to it it's mm-hmm. not like oh we have like yeah, a tiny little mur- town yeah, tiny town and again you know early 1980s i don't know there's just something about yeah there's something about that time and as soon as i hear that i was like this is not this is not going to go well
2: no yeah i think it's also interesting who heard muffled screams and who didn't too i think that's very like the neighbors didn't, but other neighbors did. So it's very like, okay. You know,
1: in, in fairness, sometimes I'll, you, you, have you ever heard something? You're like, what was that? Yeah. And it could have been like anything. Yeah. It, Literally it, anything. could be a coyote. It could be a murder. Or it could be people fighting. Mm-hmm. It could be somebody's radio. Like, you don't know, you don't yeah. know what it is. So. And when you're not used to hearing something, it's like jumping out and calling the police every time you hear a noise. Is, you know, yeah, especially
2: cool. you're in the woods. Like, this yeah. is a cabin. It's also just an eerie premise where you move to a different place and you live in like a cabin, like motel area. And, Who and knows I know what's going on. I down?
1: don't want to like, you know, generalize the people, but I feel like somebody didn't move from like a, you know, mini mansion in Danbury, Connecticut and then mm-hmm. move to like, like, a decrepit ish yeah. cabin in in northern California. Not to say because sometimes demographics and social and economic things can play play mm-hmm. into it. You know, poverty or, or yeah. being in a, in a you know in a in a in a lower lower income could bracket sure. But also obviously, rich people <laughs> do things all the time too. Horrible. Middle things. class, everyone's horrible, doing horrible everything things. all the time. Everyone's
2: but killing everyone's. Fucking up, everyone's fucking around. All of you. No one, no one is above fuckery.
1: Except January Jones.
2: No, that's true.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well.